welcome to the Playboy Mansion. Beg the question, what has gone wrong with young Hollywood? Honest to God, what is the problem? Hello and welcome to Season 5 of Lay Do You Remember This, where we look back on all the stories from Hollywood's best, worst decade, the early 2000s, a time in history when America found out that with a trust fund, a sex tape, and a dream, you too could become a star. As always, I'm your host, Dara Lane, and today we begin a storytelling series on a subject that I believe most closely embodies the spirit of this podcast— and me, the woman behind it. It's got it all. Juicy tracksuits, Ugg boots, women with baby voices, creepy men, reality TV, people whose obsession with nostalgia is crippling their personal development, tube socks, pink, seemingly frivolous content with a dark and terrifying underbelly, themed outfits, and most importantly, disrespected women who ultimately triumph over the men and institutions who underestimate them. Of course, I'm talking about The Girls Next Door, the reality show where through the eyes of its stars, Holly Madison, Bridget Marquardt, and Kendra Wilkinson, you got to see what life was like behind the gates of the Playboy Mansion, or at least the parts that their boyfriend Hugh Hefner wanted you to see. Over the duration of this season, we'll talk about the girls themselves, their humble small-town beginnings, their path to Playboy and then to stardom, and everything that came after, including tell-all memoirs, feuds, and marital scandals but we can't talk about them without delving into Playboy magazine and Hef, the man, the myth, the legend. And today in episode one, we'll be going back to where it all began in 1926 and the birth of baby Hef. Now I know, you guys came here for the early 2000s and not a history lesson. But remember, I'm the cool teacher. I record all these podcasts sitting on a backwards chair. You can call me by my first name. You won't even know you're learning until one day you're hanging out with your friends at the food court chowing down on some Sabaro pizza, and you'll mention something you learned in this class because it directly relates to your teenage suburban life. And it won't be until that very moment that you realize history is actually pretty cool. So yes, this episode is light on Holly, Bridget, and Kendra, but there's still plenty of other famous blondes to talk about. See, I could have just skipped all the way to the day that Hef and Holly meet, but to understand Hef, you have to learn his whole story, because his story in some ways begins and ends with his childhood. He is the ultimate nostalgia queen, and all that he experienced then permeated his every move and decision for the rest of his life to a pathological degree. And to understand life for Holly, Bridget, and Kendra at the mansion, you have to look at his past girlfriends because his patterns never changed much in that arena either. The history also corroborates and gives new context to Holly's account of Hef in her memoir, Down the Rabbit Hole, a book that at the time it was published in a pre-Me Too world had pretty mixed reactions by readers and by other people with personal connections to Hef. Even as recently as this year, I've heard reviews where you get the impression that people think she was exaggerating. Her book was one of the first things I read when I started researching this series a few months ago. And today, months later, I come to you after doing an unholy amount of research. 
so much that the information has seeped into my blood cells and rewired my brain chemistry to the point where a bunny in a bow tie and cufflinks hops his way into my every daydream and nightmare. And after all that, after learning so much, I came back to a quote from Holly's book. To this day, it astounds me the number of misconceptions that abound about my life and my experiences while at the mansion. Usually, the version of the story most flattering to Hef is the one that prevails. I've seen both sugar-coated and sensationalized accounts of life at the mansion, but nothing I've ever read remotely resembles what I actually experienced. And I was astounded, too. Astounded that nothing negative he ever said or did or was a part of really ever followed Hef and stayed in the public's memory after he had his resurgence of popularity in 1999. Sure, there's the camp of people who have always said he exploited women in his magazine, but there's also the camp that call him a feminist and a revolutionary. He had been dealing with that since the beginning of his career, and I don't think that particular back and forth really bothered him. But he did carefully craft the persona he wanted to present to the world, and anything that didn't align with that, whether it was predatory, unethical, or simply uncool, it never seemed to stick. It would slide right off his back, which probably had something to do with his well-documented long-time affinity for baby oil, which he kept a stash of in almost every room of the Playboy Mansion. The thing is, on this podcast... We like to wipe off the baby oil and see what sticks. Now let's flip on the phonograph or wind it up or whatever it is you do and head on back to 1926, the Roaring Twenties. Hugh Marston Hefner was born in Chicago, Illinois to two Midwestern Methodist cliches. Dad was an accountant who was never home, Mom was a puritanical ice queen. Both were repressed, and Hugh was never shown affection as a child, which he said many times in interviews, but I'm guessing never to a therapist. Little Huey was always very creative, drawing cartoons and comic books and making movies with his younger brother Keith. Watching Hollywood movies was an obsession for Hugh and shaped him profoundly as a person. I think that I escaped early on into the dreams and fantasies fueled by the movies. I never lost touch with those fantasies and made them come true. And a lot of the girls that I've fallen in love with look like the girls I saw in those movies. There were, there were a lot of platinum blondes in the movies in the 1930s. And since my marriage, all my girlfriends have looked like they stepped right out of a Busby Berkeley musical. Some would say most of the playmates in the magazine. Have yes, I think that I could be accused of that, yes. We, we try to get some ethnic diversity, but we do seem to lean in the direction of blondes. Oh, he tried. When he was 16, he fell in love with a young woman named Betty who didn't reciprocate, and he was crushed by the brutal rejection though it seems like Betty didn't exactly remember it the same way he did. We were going into our junior year. I was a soda jerk in the drugstore, and he came in and uh, chatted. It was fun. I never knew that Hef had a crush on me. He was a good buddy as far as I was concerned. Hef tells me I was quite an influence, and that surprised me at no end. I felt flattered, terribly flattered, but I didn't, I didn't see how that ever could be true. 
See? Brutal. It was so traumatic, he never forgot it. That clip was from the girls next door, which means that, like, 65 years later, he pulled some elderly woman out of her retirement community in the suburbs of Illinois just to put her on an e-reality show so she could talk about her experience with him. And she's like, uh, I don't think about you at all. But thanks for the free trip to L.A., As rightfully confusing as it was to Betty that her kind of sort of rejecting a guy she thought was her friend could change the trajectory of modern society, that was kind of exactly what happened. I was not only crushed, I reinvented myself for the first time and started referring to myself for the first time as half instead of Hugh, changed my wardrobe uh, into what I thought was a little cooler. And it was obviously a way of getting attention, but it was quite literally doing what in effect I would do later on in my life. So without Betty, there would be no Hef, and without Hef, there would be no Playboy magazine, which was a major influence in shaping the sexual revolution. But there was a Betty, and she inspired Hef to do a full Sandra D. cool dude makeover. It appeared as if all the pieces were beginning to fall into place to create the Hef as we know him today. Withholding mother... Check. Girl who rejected you? Check. But he would still need a third little witch to complete the unholy trinity. Then, and only then, could he be reborn into a true stud, incapable of intimacy. He didn't have to wait long, because at the end of high school, he met Millie Williams and they fell in love. At the time, Hef was still a virgin, and as far as he knew, Millie was too. They decided to remain chaste, even after Hef enlisted in the military and was about to be shipped off, which were ideal circumstances for premarital virginity loss in the 1940s. Having stayed faithful throughout his service, Hef returned home to attend college and reunite with Millie. They got engaged and finally punched their V-cards. Everything was peachy keen until just before the wedding when Millie confessed that she'd had an affair. Uh, we got married. The magic was gone from the very beginning. Because of the confession about the affair? Yeah, I think so. The trust was... Yes. I, I, in other words, I think that... Uh, I don't think there's any question about it. Uh, how, how it would have turned out without the affair, you know, was I well suited for marriage, etc.? I don't know. But I was, you know, truly crushed. Devil woman, thy name is betrayal. Withholding, rejection, and betrayal joined hands around Hef, and together they forged in fire the soul of an unrepentant playboy. From that day forward, he would be a white man with something to prove, which meant his success could know no bounds. After marrying Millie despite the cheating, Hef worked various nine-to-fives that he hated. He was a cartoonist, a copywriter, and a circulation director at a children's magazine where he learned about the distribution side of publishing. When his daughter Christy was born in 1952, he felt even more stifled by the constraints of traditional life and decided that he couldn't be happy unless he owned his own magazine. He eventually came up with the idea for Stag Party, a sophisticated periodical for the city-bred man. 
But Stag Party wasn't going to be just a magazine. It was a lifestyle, a philosophy. The Stag Party man was a man who likes art, literature, a stiff yet perfectly balanced Manhattan, and most of all, boobies. The Stag Man sees what he wants, and he goes out and grabs it. And what does he want? Boobies. And not just one set of boobies, several sets of boobies attached to multiple different ladies. The magazine would also push the revolutionary idea that nice girls like to have sex too, and often with men who aren't their husbands. So how did a repressed Methodist with one sexual partner suddenly have a change of heart when it came to casual sex? Well, another huge influence on his life came in 1948 with the publishing of the book Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, better known as the Kinsey Report. Written by the researcher Alfred Kinsey, the gist of the book is, according to our scientific research, sex is natural, sex is good. Not everybody does it, but everybody should. Hef was like, Bling. What? He couldn't believe that people were hiding their sexual behaviors and behind closed doors were masturbating, having affairs, having sex with people they didn't intend on marrying, and having sex with people of the same sex. It was a wild and controversial concept for the time, and Hef became obsessed with the report and Alfred's work. After Hef got married, he still dreamed that he could have a life full of endless boobies. With that inspiration in mind, Hef would come home from his job and work through the night on his magazine that he renamed Playboy due to a rights issue with another publication. It was all an uphill battle until Hef hit a stroke of luck when he stumbled upon nude calendar photos of Marilyn Monroe for sale by the photographer. Hef bought the original Marilyn pictures for $600. Small price to pay. That was like right at the beginning of her career too, right? Yes, it was the year in which she became a star. I think there wouldn't be a Playboy without the Marilyn Monroe picture. I think that was what really made a splash and really gave the magazine publicity when it first needed it. And that's definitely true. Too bad Marilyn didn't have any say in it. Those photos had been taken in 1949, well before Marilyn ever became famous. At the time, she was an out-of-work model and actress, and this particular photographer had routinely asked her to pose nude for a higher rate than her usual, but she had always rebuffed him, until one day when she was desperate for money to make a car payment. So for $50 and the promise that he would take the photos in such a way where no one could recognize her, she agreed to the shoot and signed the release form as Mona Monroe. In November of 1953, 70,250 copies of those photos were available to the public for purchase sandwiched between the pages of the first issue of Playboy. No one ponied up 50 cents to read the articles in a magazine they'd never heard of. They paid for what was explicitly promised to them in big, bold type on the cover. Marilyn Monroe, nude. Marilyn never saw any money from the sales of the magazine since she had signed a release form, and she never heard from Hef either. As she said in her memoir, quote, the magazine, I was told, thanks to my photos, was an instant sellout all across the country, an instant success. 
I never even received a thank you from all those who made millions off of a new Maryland photograph. I even had to buy a copy of the magazine to see myself in it. At this point, Marilyn was finally enjoying financial security through her very newfound fame. And now, the scandal of this nude photo jeopardized all of it. A Fox executive told her that this would be the end of her movie career. But luckily, when she admitted that it was her in the photo, the public rallied around her instead. Now, since Marilyn signed away her rights to the photo, publishing it years later in an outlet she wouldn't have approved of wasn't technically illegal. However, I think we can all agree it wasn't very cool on Hef's part. It was the 50s, though, a different time, and Hef wasn't famous. Surely, once he was put in a position of power, he wouldn't dream of doing something like that again. Obviously, I'm about to tell you that Hef did this a bunch more times. I don't know why I'm bothering being cute about it. Suzanne Summers, who starred in the show Three's Company in Step by Step, has a very similar story to Marilyn's. Around 1970, she was a single mom three months behind on rent, and a photographer paid her to take some topless photos on the beach. He sent them into Playboy because if they liked them, the photographer would get a $500 finder's fee. The magazine never did anything with those test shots until 10 years later, when Suzanne was starring on a network TV show and was the spokeswoman for Ace Hardware. She was on the cover, and in the spread there was no indication that the pictures were taken a decade before. Ace dropped her as their spokesperson, and advertisers were threatening to pull their ads if she wasn't fired from the show. Luckily, though, when the public heard her story, they rallied around Suzanne just as they did for Marilyn. She kept her job, and Ace Hardware apologized and rehired her. In 1985, Playboy published photos of Madonna taken before she was famous in the late 70s. The photographer made six figures from the sale, while Madonna made nothing more than the $10 an hour she got on the day of the shoot. A year earlier, Playboy had actually refused, on moral grounds, to buy and publish old photos of the reigning Miss America, Vanessa Williams. What was the difference? Playboy said, quote, We think Vanessa genuinely didn't know what she was doing, didn't know her photos would be published. Madonna, on the other hand, posed for two noted photographers who routinely published what they shot. How paternal. And maybe not true. I've also heard that Hef was actually pressured into declining the nude photos of the first black Miss America by his very close friend Bill Cosby. These are only a couple examples of actresses having their photos published in Playboy without their consent. How could you blame Hef, though? He found a business model that worked. Thanks to that first issue, the magazine was an overnight success. Playboy kept growing, and by 1959, Hef was a very rich man. And what better time than that to divorce your wife? While Millie took care of Christy and a son they had a few years after her, Hef was busy enjoying the good life, and he realized that this was the life he wanted forever. A life where he never had to grow up, where he could have sex without the responsibility of marriage. And now that birth control pills were invented and becoming widely available, he could have sex with as many women as he wanted without worrying about the responsibility of a child. 
with his mountains of cash, Hef created the bachelor pad of his dreams. He bought the Chicago Playboy Mansion for $370,000 and then invested another $400,000 into renovating it. He added secret passageways, a 24-hour kitchen where you could order anything you want and the chefs had to oblige, and the six-car garage was converted to an indoor swimming pool that was hidden behind a trap door built into the floor. For $6 million, he bought and renovated the Big Bunny, a private jet outfitted with a dance floor, a bedroom with a revolving bed, and a Roman-style bath and shower. Basically, Hef spent his money like a middle school boy, but like a middle school boy in some kind of warped live-action Disney movie from the 90s, where both of his parents die but his child welfare caseworker never turns up, so he uses his inheritance to buy a capuchin monkey and put an arcade where the master bedroom used to be. Enabled by his money and success, Hef surrounded himself with yes people who validated every inclination he had, no matter how strange or unreasonable it was. As a notorious recluse who hardly ever traveled, let alone left the house, it was easy to create a playboy bubble for himself where his was the only opinion and the real world didn't exist. In that bubble, he could do whatever he wanted, and what he wanted was to live out his Peter Pan fantasy where he could be young forever, and just like Neverland, there were no parents telling you what to do. No one could tell him to change out of his silk pajamas that he started to wear all day, every day. No one could gently suggest that his Pepsi habit of 25 bottles a day or his round-the-clock pipe smoking might be unhealthy. Most days, he'd wake up at 4 p.m. to work from his famous round, rotating bed, which is also where he would take the one meal he ate a day. Din Din was always sometime between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m., No one could make him eat his vegetables. In fact, he only ate an extremely short list of foods that he had been eating since childhood, which included chicken noodle soup, fried chicken, pork chops, candy bars, and potato chips. If it didn't taste the way his mother used to make it, or if he found any flaw, he'd send it back. The staff quickly learned that it was easier to ensure perfection before the meal left the kitchen, as Bridget explains in this chip clip. Honey, did you have a problem with um, broken chips one time? Broken chips? Chips, yeah. Because oh, is, that a, is that a legend in terms of... No, what? I've seen it. It's not a legend. It really happens. Oh, that they're very careful to... They dump out the whole bag of potato chips, <laughs> and they dig through it, and only the absolutely perfect ones go on your plate. They can't have what? a brown edge. They can't be cracked. They can't have... They can't be pieces. They handpick which chips go on your plate. Uh, isn't that the way everybody is? <laughs> in the mansion, there was also no mean mommy to tell him to pick up his room, which allowed him to devolve into a man who never threw anything out. He never grew out of that, which was difficult for his girlfriends because amidst the crap, there was very little room for their stuff. Holly did try to get him organized, but it didn't seem to stick. There's a lot of crap in Hef's in my room. It's just packed full of everything from every stuffed animal Hef has ever received as a gift to unclaimed underwear, to pictures and books everywhere, to piles of things that we're working on. I mean, it's not organized in any way. Okay. As far as me having any room, it's a joke. Oh, 
I mean, Bridget and Kendra both have bedrooms the size of a damn condo, and then I like live in a corner of Hef's closet, and he has so much stuff. There's like no room for anything of mine. That's why my side of the room is always a mess too, is because all my stuff it just has to go in a damn pile in the middle of the room because there's nowhere to put it. In line with his hoarding tendencies, Hef kept a record of everything, which included a book filled with the name, date, details, and sometimes pictures of every single person he had sex with. The many staff members at the mansion liked to sneak a peek at the logbook, which provided hours of secret amusement for everyone. One day after Hef took out his daughter Christy and her friends to celebrate her 16th birthday, a few days later, an employee named Milda was flipping through the infamous logbook when she, quote, noticed the latest entry was a name entirely unfamiliar to her. In the comments column, Hefner had written, Friend of Christie's. Hef also had a video camera, which allegedly recorded everyone who entered the bedroom. Hef had also been scrapbooking since childhood, but once he had the means, he hired a full-time scrapbooking and video staff who would compile every mention of him in the press, videos of every interview he did, pictures of every person who came into the house, and all the notes he took about the comings and goings of his life. No mention of him was too inconsequential to save. Holly says in her book that in the 2000s, one of his girlfriends did an interview with Howard Stern, where she said that she and the other girls never actually slept with Hef. He kicked her out of the mansion, and years later, Holly found in Hef's press collection a VHS copy of the interview with a skull and crossbones drawn on the label. But you're talking about the number one scrapbooker of all time is me. <laughs> How many do you have now? Well, when I bring it up today, it'll be over 2,000. Hef has thousands of scrapbooks. He is a scrapbooking freak, and he's constantly working on it. He wants to document every aspect of his life. Would you like to see the scrapbook room? Yeah. Let's do it. Let's go up yeah. there. Let's do it. <laughs> Hef retained his scrapbooking staff for the rest of his life. You had to give it to him, though. Once he started the magazine, there was never a lack of things for him to scrapbook about, especially when the Playboy brand grew even bigger after the first Playboy club opened in 1960 and the world was introduced to the Playboy bunny, not to be confused with a Playboy playmate. Yeah. People assume because I'm Hef's girlfriend that I'm a bunny and I'm a playmate and I'm a centerfold, but they're different things. If you're a playmate or a centerfold, which is the same thing, you post for the magazine, you were one particular month, and not every playmate is a bunny. A bunny is a girl who used to work at the Playboy Club. She had the bunny costume, and now that we don't have Playboy Clubs, it's just playmates who work special promotions and are fitted for a bunny costume. The Playboy Club manual. was a transportive, members-only nightclub and restaurant with beautiful young women in kitschy uniforms working every front-of-house position. They were highly trained to provide not only impeccable service, but a one-of-a-kind experience, not unlike a Buca di Beppo or a Rainforest Cafe. Hef's younger brother Keith transitioned from struggling actor to the director of bunny recruitment. Applicants would receive leaflets written by Keith at their interviews entitled, What is a Bunny? She is the American romanticized myth. Beautiful, desirable, and a nice, fun-loving person. A bunny is not a broad or a hippie. She may be sexy, but it's a fresh, healthy sex, not cheap or lewd. 
The Playboy Club is more like show business than the saloon business, and the bunnies are the stars. I thought I was a movie star. I mean, that's really what I thought. A bunny? That's what you are. You're not a waitress. You're a bunny. We would walk through that room owning it. It was ours. We were making more money than most men were making at that time. The bunnies were the Playboy Clubs. Without the bunnies, there would be no Playboy Clubs. It would just be a bar and grill. People bought into the glamour and the mystique of the Playboy Club and their bunnies, and the original Chicago Club expanded to locations across the U.S. and London. But not everyone was convinced that serving men's steaks and heels was as chic as it was made out to be. That's when a former dancer and pageant queen named Gloria Steinem went full Josie Grossi for her first assignment as a journalist. I was sitting in an editorial meeting at uh, Show Magazine. I don't know if anybody remembers this big, beautiful arts magazine. A whole tree sacrificed its life for every issue. <laughs> and uh, the Playboy Club was just opening. Uh, and I said, well, we should send Lillian Ross, great New Yorker writer, right, to be a bunny. I mean, obviously, that was completely impractical. <laughs> and so suddenly the editors, who were all guys, of course, I was the only woman, looked at me and said, no, you do it. I said, no, are you kidding me? I mean, they're not going to hire me. I don't have ID. I don't, I'm too old. Actually, even then, I was too old to be a bunny. <laughs> um, they said, no, no. So I needed to pay my rent. And so... <laughs> I went and discovered that they were desperate, big time desperate for bunnies because it is a lousy job. They were advertising that you would earn much more money than you actually earned. Um, so I, to my amazement, passed right through all the tests and rehearsals and everything and ended up in this costume that was so tight that a man would have a cleavage and that, you know, <laughs> and, and being trained in the bunny dip and so on and so on. Uh, what is the bunny dip? The, the, the bunny dip is basically, do I know? <laughs> is, is basically how to hold a tray and serve your customer without falling out of your costume. <laughs> That's the bunny dip, and we had to practice it and so on. Uh, but I just want to say that another requirement was that you had to have an internal physical exam, which they told us was a requirement of the, uh, I don't know, food servers in New York State. At, which, of course, was utter bullshit, and I knew it was utter bullshit, but I knew I also couldn't do the story, but anyway. Um, but at least that and some of the other worst things were done away with be because of the expose I did. Now, so I'm not sorry I did it, but it is true that as old as I am, and I am seriously old, when anybody wants to put me down, they say, well, she was once a bunny. You know, still? Right. still? You still get that? I you still get that. Steinem? You yes, get that? Yes, After the article, that, right. the Playboy Bunny lost a lot of its shine in the eyes of the public, and it sparked a mutual, seething hatred between Hef and Gloria that lasted for decades. In 1984, Hef published a candid accidental nip-slip photo of Gloria taken on her 50th birthday at a Miss Magazine Foundation benefit. In 1971... Hef's girlfriend at the time, Barbie Benton, convinced Hef to buy a mansion she found in Los Angeles. After the new mansion was renovated to include the necessary secret passageways, 
Hef began to split his time between the new mansion with his new girlfriend and his old mansion with his new mistress, Karen. This was a common practice for Hef since the end of his marriage to Millie. His senior VP, Victor Lone, said, quote, That's when he really came into his own as a playboy. Both Hef and me adopted the same routine. He would always have one number one girlfriend who would publicly be seen on the property. Then we'd have a few spares in the background. Eventually, Hef moved to L.A. full-time, and he never wanted to leave the home he called the Shangri-La. So he made everyone come to him. And come they did, because there was a lot of group sex happening there in the 70s. Ooh! Well, bunnies and babes, that was part one of part one. But there's still nine more single-spaced pages of this episode one transcript left to go. And we've got some wild stuff left to cover. There's roller skating discos, murder, Hef being a seriously messy bitch at the expense of a 16-year-old girl, plus Anna Nicole, marriage, separation, and then we finally step into the early 2000s. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss part two of part one. Lady, do you remember this is researched, written, narrated, and edited by me, Dara Lane. If you aren't already, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave a rating and review. You can follow updates on the pod on Instagram and Twitter, stream our early 2000s Spotify and Apple Music playlists, and download some Laydew-inspired coloring book pages. You'll find those links on the show's Instagram. And please, if you like the podcast, share it. Tell your friends. It's true what they say. It takes a village to make me famous. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please email this at gmail.com. So, you're invited to come back next week. We've got a table, and I've put you on the list for Lay Do You Remember This.